Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I'm Jennifer Shahadi, and today I have a very special guest, a professional poker player with over 500K in live earnings and several million online. Our guest today is a blogger and an award-winning podcast host of The Chip Race. He's originally from Ireland, and he is the hilarious David Lappin, and today he's calling from his home base in Malta. David will be peeling back the curtain into his life before he became a professional poker player, when he was a screenwriter poised toward a life in TV and film production. The hand in question is pocket fives, of course, a very critical holding to click off the grid. I'm sure those of you who are listening have plenty of memories with this emphatic hand. Um, but with no further ado, here he is, the best frenemy the grid's got, David Lappin. Hello and welcome to the show, David. Great to be on the show, Jen. Now, I have to say, first off, there, you know, you're introducing me as a friend of me, but, you know, you've somehow with this show managed to harness the raw excitement of a random person telling you a hand history on the break with the unadulterated fun of charts. So, congratulations on that. <laughs> Wait, is, is that a compliment or. I, I'm, I can't tell, but that's okay. That was the point, right? That's what a friend of me's are for. Indeed. <laughs> so, this hand really intrigues me because, you know, we have a lot of straightforward hand histories in the grid, something crucial that happened in somebody's career, a big, you know, heads up moment for a bracelet or um, the biggest pot they ever played, since things like that have never happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Yeah. Can we just, get, yeah, just keep it going? Just let's get this shit over with. I know, I know how you're going to cut this anyway. You're going to stitch me up. Come on. <laughs> so, we, no, seriously, to me, this is really interesting because it's kind of also a big turning moment in your career as you had this path between writing and poker, these kind of uh, joint passions. So this comes from a script that you wrote. Can you give us a, some insight into like where you were with your career in writing and poker at the time and when you wrote it? Yeah, I was kind of in the bin, to be honest. I um, I had been commissioned by the National Broadcaster in Ireland to write a TV show, which was of my own creation. So that was pretty cool. I was in my early 20s and I was getting my own show, essentially getting to be showrunner on my own show. And then having written four of the six episodes, the economy crashed in Ireland. I like to blame that, but maybe they just decided the show was shit and they decided they didn't want to go with it anymore. So I then had to sort of move away from the TV show I was writing. I was writing another TV show as well with another friend and I thought, well, I better get some formal training in the screenwriting business. My background was in philosophy. So I did a master's in screenwriting and the master's thesis, if you like, was actually a finished script. So I sort of wrote this script for the for the qualification, for the master's and sort of was already a bit in the poker world so it has a kind of a poker theme to it how old were you at the time you say oh i was probably about 25 or 6 when i wrote the first draft of this and did you get an a 
I got the I did get my masters out of it, but I did not get a feature film on on the big screen, which is kind of the real point. So, so you actually sent me the script, and you know it's it's really fascinating. I, mean, I would kind of like to read the whole thing, um, but you did you did send me the excerpt where the key hand um, came came up. Um, can you can you set it up for us, like where the movie is set and the main characters that come up in the scene? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I suppose, first of all, one of the big struggles I was having writing poker scenes, and I think, you know, a lot of people who uh, ever try to write for poker will feel this as well, is it's not very visual. So I was always trying to figure out ways to make these poker scenes a bit more exciting. And the rule I sort of made for myself was that the poker scenes had to be grammatically based on an iconic movie scene of a different nature. Westerns would kind of fit the bill where it's a bit mano y mano. And I sort of hoped that by following those rules the poker scenes in the movie which are sparing because it's basically a love story with poker as a backdrop would be dynamical and would have a bit of oomph to them and and and, and it was sort of my way around the pitfall of like a boring badly looking poker scene that didn't really have any drama so in this story it's vegas it's the 1980s it's as i said a, a love story but sort of a sad one the poker and casino world are the backdrop our hero is a guy called johnny d he's a poker player and a bit of a degenerate to be honest his starting point as a character was sort of Stu Unger but he did change a lot through the script's development probably becoming a bit more like me and a bit more like having my backstory and that type of thing the movie opens on a bus going down the Vegas Strip there's neon lights out the window all that kind of stuff we see Johnny D 30 years old asleep his head leaning against the window his hand holding onto this tatty brown leather Bucky's briefcase it rests on his lap he's kind of a skinny guy he wears a white 80s shirt his hair is a sort of brown unkept mop of greasy hair he wears those circular glasses I guess again I'm kind of drawing Unger in, in many ways here the bus stops he head his head falls forward slightly he wakes up and he gets off the bus he walks maybe a couple of blocks down the Vegas Strip this is all almost like the opening sequence of the movie the sounds are sort of muted and garbled or at least that was how I imagined it so it was almost like he was underwater or he was kind of asleep and uh, he reaches the door of Binion's back in the old days sort of uh, imagine again 80s Binion's on the Strip there or sorry not on the Strip sorry in the old town there is World Series of posters on display. The door is guarded by a bouncer who won't let him in, but another guy sort of pushes the bouncer's hand away and lets him in. So we're sort of intrigued, okay, this guy is somebody. The door of the casino opens and bang, we're hit by the noise of the casino and the people and all the machines and whatnot. It's no longer garbled, so that's kind of the moment, like it's almost like he wakes up and he's back moment and we realise this is sort of meaningful. We see his point of view as he sort of walks down the casino floor. He's carrying this bag, he gets to the queue of the cashier cage there's only one cashier there the guy who's let him in so we who seems to know him sort of rushes in behind the cashier opens another section and takes him immediately so again we're kind of like oh he is definitely somebody we're meant to care about this guy the guy says it's good to see you he says it's good to see you too and the it cuts to him playing this hat so standing over a seat at the poker table Johnny, he takes a stack of chips from his chip tray, plunks them on the table. We kind of get a freeze frame that it's 1988 Binion's Horseshoe Casino. John's dealt into the hand. He's sitting in the cutoff. Still standing up, actually. He peeks at his cards. He's got the five of hearts, five of diamonds. He counts out 400 chips. I guess a, a sort of an open you might have done back then. Uh, puts them past the line and takes a seat. Player on the button then, uh, 26-year-old guy, David. I guess he's kind of a fresh face in poker for the time. He, you know, mostly the demographics at the table would have been older people. 
He looks down at his cards, counts out some chips and looks at John smiling. Make it 1500, he says. These guys are probably paying like 10k stacks. Players in the blinds both fold. One of them is Sam, a 58-year-old big bill cowboy hat sort of guy imagine your Doyle Brunson type of character here John leans forward surveying David over the top of his sunglasses which sort of hang off the tip of his nose he's got one of those Rasputin intense stares John says I call dealer puts out the flop two players says the dealer we see the flop jack of clubs nine of spades six of hearts so you know pretty terrible flop for pocket fives David looks down at the board John completely disregards the board just looks at David intently and then I guess almost I had imagined it like a shutter on a camera he does this like fast double blink with the middle the gap in the blink him looking at the board and he actually leads out for 2k here which is like sort of a bit of a dunk bet really let's be honest David looks down at his chips he's visibly counting his stack he's got about 9k left the obvious move is to kind of go all in here and then he looks at John who's gazed is like razor fixed on him uh, 10 is eventually broken by John who says I know what you're thinking kids you're thinking he's got a medium pocket pair so if I re-raise them all in here he can't call and that might be true except for the fact that I know you have ace king so look you might get lucky you might hit the ace or the king but I'm gonna have to call so nervously playing with his chips now David looks at him and then glances at his cards he does have the ace king and he just tosses the cards in the muck saying, okay, I'll give you this one. John pushes the glasses higher up his face and takes a peek at the cards again before mucking them. The young fella David says, you know, he introduces himself and uh, and then asks him who he is. At which point Sam, this burly, jovial fella, starts laughing, says, oh, these young'uns, huh, John? John smiles uh, and he says, it used to be the case that I was the young'un. Uh, the young guy David's even more confused. Sam says, look at the wall behind you there, kid. At which point David looks around and it's the wall of past World Series of Poker Champions. And we see black and white photo depicting a younger, fitter, healthier looking, handsome, fresh-faced John sitting at the final table surrounded by press media, tournament director, who's that guy we've actually seen in the earlier scene who looked after him. Two peacock feathered models on either side of him and a million, or no, and half a million in cash on the table. The photo we are seeing immediately becomes live action and suddenly we're sort of transported back to that time and our story sort of properly begins then. This is just a, a really gripping scene to kick off your your movie um, which wasn't made but hey it's not too late David. I got to tell you though when I when you when you're rereading that I couldn't help but think that um, you could tell that this was written by a young talent because only somebody in their 20s would think that 30 years old is old. Right? <laughs> I'm like, what? Like the, this old washed up 30 year old, right? Then you realize like how, how young and beautiful people look when they're 30. I know you're an exception to this, Jen, but I'm pretty much a mess and it's been a down, it's been a downward journey <laughs> since I was about 23. So I, this feels right to me. <laughs> but seriously, this hand, um, this kind of like iconic hand between fives and ace king, you modeled it after um, a real film, didn't you? Yeah. So I, I, I don't know, maybe uh, some of your maybe more film aware listeners have already figured it out but it's essentially Dirty Harry it's that scene that famous scene where I think he was eating the burger in the diner and then he sees a robbery happening across the road and it's that classic Clint Eastwood thing of him going oh fuck I guess I have to go over there and handle this now and all I want to do is eat my burger so he goes over and he's got the guns and he's firing and it's a bit of a shootout as the robber's leaving and shots are fired and we're not quite sure what the number is but anyway eventually Harry he's standing over the guy and the guy is looking at a gun that he could potentially reach himself but Harry's got the gun pointed at him and he says I know what you're thinking you're thinking did he fire five or did he fire six well you have to ask yourself the question do you feel lucky well do you 
and it's that fantastic moment of the guy trying to replay the craziness of the shootout think should i risk it i'm gonna get my head blown off if i'm wrong i can't take the chance and i just thought well that's great because there's something very pokery about that which is that you know at some level your tournament life is your life and if you get eliminated you're gone and this guy doesn't want to take that chance here and now early on he wants to you know live to fight another day if you like when you talk about like the disheveled nature now of john you know seven years after winning the world series of poker champion in your script is it also that he's lost a lot of money because the very last line of the excerpt that you gave me is um a mock interview between John and Gabe Kaplan where Gabe asks, so tell us, John, what's a 25-year-old going to do with 500K? Gabe puts the microphone up to John's mouth. After a short pause, John blinks and then shrugs and says, well, I'll gamble it. Yeah. So that that is, I think, an actual Unger line maybe from back in the day. The, uh, again, when I was researching this, I was kind of using some source material. It might have been from Nolan Dallas' book, maybe I got that or something. But there was that kind of general attitude with Unger, which is that like winning that sort of money was just more money to gamble with. And I guess that's the, the life he led. And he obviously lived a, a troubled life with drugs and other things as well, other vices, and very much they're a part of this character's story as well. Yeah, you know, that's, that, that's interesting. And I think it has a lot to do with like this philosophy of just winning money and then wanting to just put it into gambling and other like quote unquote fun things. You know, we associate it with youth, but I also feel like I associate it now that I'm a parent as um, having both, the luxury and the curse of living almost fully in the present, right? Where, you know, if you're totally living in the present, you got to spend the money now, right? Now, you and I are both parents. So it's like kind of hard to conceptualize that you wouldn't figure out what to do with a couple hundred thousand dollars because you're like, hey, I can always save it for my family, right? Be pretty hard to spend it right now, let's be honest. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, uh, I got very excited this week because my girlfriend somehow ordered a new shower head. And that was like the biggest thing we've bought in the last crazy month and a half. And I thought, wow, that's cool. We have a new shower head and it's really good. It's much better than the old one. And that's brought so much joy to my life. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I had a little score online the other day and I'm like, well, well what, what can I buy? I can, you know, donate to some online fundraisers. I can buy some expensive nail polish. You know, it's like there's not, there's not, there's not much to do. You can't go out and have like a boozy lunch and, and buy some new shoes, right? Exactly. But seriously, about the script. Um, so it was just... John kind of on a like a downward spiral or was this a classic riches to rags back to riches story? I guess it's more of an emotional journey for him as a person. The, the, the money, I guess, sort of reflects where he's at. You know, when we meet him early on, he, he starts off rich. We, we only really begin with him after he's won. So we don't know what his backstory is. We find out pretty quickly he's pretty degenerate with the way he uses the money. Pretty much doesn't value it as money that can help his life. But he meets a woman and he enters into a love affair with her. And she he, he discovers on their first date, I think it was in the story, that she has a son and it's kind of about him taking on the responsibility of being a parent so a little bit like what you were saying there a moment ago and figuring out who he wants to be and figuring out the kind of man he wants to be there are parallels for him between his relationship with his sort of father figure who's actually his uncle his father died young and his uncle is sort of his father figure and we also don't know might actually also be his father that's kind of part of the story too but it's this sort of notion of like, well, somebody took on the responsibility for him at some point to be a father to him. And uh, and that guy is very much a character in the story. So he is very much a, an ever-present figure in it. And it's about the mirroring of that for John to do the same thing for this woman who's actually dying. It's in the 
story's engine quite early on that she's terminally ill. So it comes down to him having to make a choice that's very unselfish about this kid and also a choice of who he wants to be in life. I guess the financial stuff sort of mirrors that or it becomes part of the journey as he wins and loses or is more or less responsible with the money but it, it isn't a poker movie I hope. It's kind of a, a movie set in the poker world that's about real people. And when you reread the script, is it something that you still feel very close to? Is it like a movie that if you had the time would try to promote and get made? Or do you feel like you would try to create another script with elements of it? That's a great question. I think I would want it to be made in some form because I think it wasn't too bad. Like the very first thing, that TV show I talked about that got commissioned, when I read that back now, it feels very dated. Part of me, I would have wished it had happened because I'm sure it would have opened doors just to have even had a show made, even if it wasn't that good. I don't think that show would have been that good. It was of its time. It was a 20 three-year-old writing a tv show that he'd just come up with so i i was pretty green but you know as time has passed i wrote another tv show with a um, a friend of mine ray and i think that's probably the best thing i've written and this would be the next thing in the locker if you like that i would like to develop but it's been a long time this is the thing about me i i, I sort of never planned to be a poker player i thought i would be a writer and then i got kind of humiliated by the writing process and the begging broadcasters and commissioning editors to to pay me to write process and how humbling all that is and and miserable actually really because you know you're very passionate about something and you kind of get kicked in the face it's a bit similar to I guess an actor's life I was very keen to grasp some control over my own life again and poker playing actually provided that for me because I was a sort of one-man show you know you can do your study you can read the books as I would have been then or watch the videos now you can become a better player and you can figure it out and you can be self-sufficient and independent and you don't have a boss telling you what to do and that was such a huge part of what my soul needed at the time to just clamber onto that control again so so for me it was poker was like it gave me that and then I did get really into the game and I love the game still to this day although probably a bit of a mixture of the playing side of it and the other aspects of of, of what I do in poker these days but yeah for me the, the biggest thing would have been getting back that control and I never planned on being a poker player I always thought I'll end up going back to writing and I just never have and now it seems so far away it seems so long ago you obviously are a podcast host of the chip race and you do a lot of writing and production on that so do you feel like your creative outlet is fulfilled in some ways with like the blogging that you do and the chip race or do you still have this yearning for like a big juicy hamburger of a writing project (laughs) 100% the blog was the first thing I became obsessed with writing my own journey in poker I I guess that was how I scratched that itch and and then once the opportunity to do the podcast came about which requires a little bit more collaboration and a little bit more complexity and pre-production and post-production so it had more of the elements of I guess what a film would would end up having obviously that would be more complicated again Um, and and then of course working with somebody else which is the joy of it you know uh, as I said the second TV show I wrote was with this guy Ray who's a good friend of mine and he's great fun to be around and we collaborated really well I think we shored up each other's weaknesses quite well and I have to say I'd say the exact same thing about Darren and I we just have a great relationship making the chip race putting it together, curating the show in game as well. When you're doing the interviews, you know, there's a performance aspect to it. And I think we do pretty good these days. We were both very green at the start, but I think we're decent at it now. And and the show sounds like the way I would like the show to sound. It has done for a couple of years. Maybe it didn't in the first years we were finding our feet, but it it does now and it has all the different segments. So it has a nice variety aspect to it. And, And yeah, no, very much the podcast is 
the thing that gives me the most pleasure these days. It's it's the piece of content I'm most proud of for sure. Uh, so going back quickly to this hand, because, you know, having ace king and missing the flop is, of course, like the first nightmare or recurring nightmare that amateurs face when they start playing poker, right? It's just like more regularly, right? They know that this is an unpaired hand that they can play very aggressively and then they don't know what to do with it. So hence the uh, the cliche, what do you do with Ace King here? Um, so, but in this particular spot that you wrote for the, the movie, um, it's actually the hero who um, ends up leading after getting three bets. So um, did you run this hand in Pio? And <laughs> what did it say about hero's play? I think the guy who invented Pio may not have been born when I wrote this hand, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure uh, if it's Pio approved in any way, shape or form. Now, do you know where the, the influence for this hand was? Because I couldn't say it was a hand I ever played myself. was actually Phil Helmuth. I had one of those bluff subscriptions about oh, 10 years ago or nine years ago, where if you had a subscription to bluff and got the magazine every month, you also got access to the final tables at the World Series. They were one of the sponsors. Now, it was real budget. It wasn't like the way the the feature tables work today it it looked really really like a three camera setup and kind of from too far a distance and usually you couldn't see the flop that well or whatever it was and it was this cool hand it was on his way to his 11th I want to say bracelet and it was exactly like it the hand played out exactly like I just described in the in the story so I, I copied that helmet hand and he did that Phil did that he looked at this kind of more amateurish guy I think there was maybe eight left nine left on the final table he dunk led in with his I think he had pocket pair I can't remember what I think he I don't think we ever even saw Phil's hand so maybe we don't even know but he claimed to have like five six sevens eights one of those hands and he did say to the guy you know I I know you have ace king so if you go all in I'm going to call and, you know, maybe you get lucky and hit the ace or king, but I know you've ace king, so I'm going to call. Now, of course, in retrospect, Phil may have been levelling the guy, figuring that, well, I've put him under so much pressure now that if he does go all in, I'm going to believe he's kings and fold. But it was a really cool speech play. And I thought, well, that's the kind of stuff you need. You know, if you're going to do a hand in a movie and maybe there's only going to be like five poker hands in this entire film you need something that's a bit juicy like that and, and I thought it had all the elements oh yeah that's great and I'm glad I'm glad to know that it was modeled off of Phil Helmuth's hand and the guy did fold so we don't know for sure if he had ace king but presumably some unpaired hand I think the guy had ace king or ace queen and I think Phil had like fives through eights one of those hands and uh did Phil end up winning that event yeah, he did. It was his 11th bracelet. It was He did take it down about three or four hours later, yeah. And what year was that again? I want to say like 2010, yeah. maybe. Yeah, that'd be interesting to look back over. Of course, Phil Helmuth is known for his speech play. What about you? Is that a type of play that you sometimes use in tournaments? Do you sometimes just talk to your opponent to try to either get information or, you know, change the action? Because I know you quite well online, for better or worse. I mean, we've never played live together. No, I don't think we have. I would be known as a bit of a speech player now anyone who knows me very well all my inner circle will know exactly what I have every time I open my mouth in these spots they're like oh Dave has it or oh Dave doesn't have it I wonder if the guy will call they can see through it but I think there are those tricks that you have against let's call them random players or recreational players or just you know minefield players in 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 big tournaments that you may never see again and I do feel like there is an opportunity there to you know maybe reveal the strength of my hand to a, a sophisticated player but they're definitely not on that level and I think you always want to take that exploit if you can. So give me an example of something with speech play. What about like beginner speech play? Because I'm going to tell you I'm a, I would be considered a beginner in speech play. Sometimes online heads up like if my opponent's chatting I'll do some like you know chat play heads up. But like I don't 
think I've ever really tried to use speech play in a tournament. Maybe if it's all in versus me on the river. And even then, I'm usually pretty sparing with it because I don't want to level myself. So for somebody who basically almost never use it, what do, what do you feel is like the, the beginner the beginner strategy? Okay, one of my favorite ones, and I used to do this on the old UK IPT tour. Uh, it was a UK and Ireland poker tour here about maybe eight or nine years ago. I'm sure you must have played a few of the stops. So tell me what you think of this one. So you know that classic situation where the guy sort of like goes all in, puts on his coat and he's like, okay, go on, I'm just gambling, you know, here we go or whatever. And he does that whole kind of spiel where he's, you know, pretending essentially that he's not strong and everyone would read that as very strong. That would be a, a classic read that, well, that guy really does have it because he's trying to do the overperformance and over Hollywood. So I used to do the overperformance over Hollywood when I was bluffing because I thought the guy is probably at just the right level where he's going to see through an obvious Hollywood performance and therefore I'll level him one more time. Yeah, okay, that's a good one. I, You know how I would interpret that if somebody did that to me? I would interpret it as like a... A good hand, but not like the nuts and not like not a pure bluff. I don't know. I, I, that's like that would come to me quickly because I mean, like the person's comfortable enough that they know it's like correct to make the play, but they're not so afraid to hide that they have like aces or kings or like nervous that it's like so low in the range, you know? Well, that would have been my like if I have the nut blocker. Let's say I've got the ace of clubs and there's four clubs out or there's three clubs out there board, but I don't have the flush. That would be my move to like if I'm going to check raise the guy is I would do that one because that just looks insanely strong to them then, I think. If they're on that oh, level. Oh, post-flop. Okay. On the river, I've got the nut blocker and then I check and he bets and I shove and I do this. I think the guy just immediately goes, he has to have it because he's at that level where he thinks I'm overacting right. with the strongest hand. So being able to pull the trigger on a bluff at that spot was a little trick I used to do quite a bit. And that worked out pretty well for you. I don't think I ever got caught with that particular one, but I didn't. I used it sparingly. <laughs> You feel like if you had to be one of the best players in the world, like what would be more likely for you, live or online? I'd imagine the world where I'm either of those things, the best online or live player. That's unfathomable to me. I think I was probably in my early career when I was playing a lot and I was a real grinder for at least seven or eight years. Like I used to 30, 40 table, no problem. Uh, mid stakes sort of maybe anything from a, a 22 rebuy to a 200 and I used to put in big volume and do big days back in the day I do a lot less volume a lot fewer tables and a lot fewer days of the week playing these days so when I was a, a real hardcore grinder it was probably the best player that I was compared to the rest of the world and back then I think you would have called me an online player for sure these days uh, again I, I don't imagine that I could ever be even in the top tier at all but maybe if it was, it would be more likely to be live. I really, I really don't know, to be honest. Well, I used to play up to 30, 40 tables. Um, that's, uh, that's a lot. I mean, obviously, poker was very different back then, but certainly like difficult even just from a hand-eye coordination point of view, not something that everyone can do. Yeah, it was basically spinning plates. It was a time where the game was so soft that you would happily give up kind of more sophisticated edges of being able to make specific judgments about specific opponents and pay more attention because the overall sort of balanced strategy just printed a good enough ROI that if you could just multiply that number, uh, it was better than finding little extra 5% of edge in individual games. Yeah, that's that's always a really interesting thing about poker history, that there were those times where people didn't really need to try to get better because there was so much great money, they would just multiply their edge and, you know, do that for a while. And then, you know, eventually it would plateau and they'd have to get better. But 
Yeah, my brother, of course, was very uh, big on multi-tabling and, you know, back in those days. So uh, to go back to your podcast, uh, The Chip Race, um, you've been nicknamed David Scissored Hands for your tight editing style. The program is split up into different parts and you really try to get the best from your guests, cut out everything that's like not interesting that they say. I really appreciate that about it because so many poker content kind of comes from another direction, which is that when poker players are listening to content, they're often also playing poker. So you don't really need to be super tight. But from my point of view, I like listening to podcasts while I'm like working out or taking walks, etc. And getting my eyelashes filled. (laughs) So for me, I really like the tight style. But is that something that obviously goes back to your film background? But do you see any corollaries with that in poker as well? Well, that's interesting. I, I suppose, first of all, the reason I do that is a, a sort of a, a gratitude for the guest. I, I sort of feel like, well, the rules are the guest came on your show and they gave up their time. So not only should you prep the interview well and hopefully ask them good questions, but you should also cut them well so that they sound tighter than they maybe were. Because I think, you know, that's nice for them. Their friends then call them up and go, you sounded great on that show. Well done. And maybe they sounded slightly better than they really were. And I think that's just a nice gesture to give your guest. And I think that's just a nice thing from a time saving point of view as well. We have a five segment show and yeah, it would go, it would run very long if we didn't edit it. So I think that's important. In terms of poker, you mean like, how do you streamline your working situation like is like in the spinning plates analogy or what do you mean well it seems like there's a level of precision that is very um important to kind of to kind of perfect in poker right and i wonder if those skills are related in some way like the precision required for like good editing and good writing and the precision required for excellent poker play well i think i would boil that down to storytelling I think you're right. I I think there is something there, which is that poker is essentially a sort of logical discourse. It's a question and answer game. You know, the the flop comes out and I bet and that's asking you a question and then you raise me and you've answered the question and maybe put a question back on me. I think when you understand poker in terms of that storytelling dynamic, you realise that some storytelling skills can be very helpful. You know, you you, you end up with a fishy story. That's a, a story where, you know, there was a, a weird twist in the tail of your movie and no one believed that your character would do that. So I think there are some definite overlaps there, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that one of the hardest things about writing or movies and poker is that it's not very visual. And where where do you find that so many poker scenes go wrong? And can you, can you give me an example of one that you actually really loved? I can't remember the exact scene, but there is one in the Cincinnati Kids that I remember thinking was great. That's a really good question. I think if you focus on that, you miss the point at some level. So a poker scene shouldn't be a poker scene. It should just be a scene in the movie which moves your character's story along, which, you know, maybe creates a, uh, you know, a fork in the road and your character has to make a decision or something. It always has to be like that. And that's basically from a storytelling point of view. That's the grammar of it. So the poker is basically you know just the setting you know it could just as easily have taken place in a supermarket or a restaurant or something else it just happens to be in this location and maybe some poker elements are sprinkled in but for me that was the whole essence of of why I didn't want to fall into that trap of just trying to write a cool poker hand I wanted it to be something that I knew could work dramatically because I I kind of didn't want to focus on the poker the the the, the film or the story should be a human drama it should be a tragedy it should be a, a comedy it should be a uh 
a development of, of characters through a plot um, and the poker should be incidental at some level. And in which way is this particular scene pushing forward the narrative? So the, the hero makes us play and then obviously wins the pot as his opponent does fold with the ace-king to his lead with the fives on the jack-nine-six rainbow. So after that, is the character kind of shifted in a certain way because of that, you know, that small victory? I don't know if they're shifted. I suppose the important thing to remember is that's an opening scene and most of the lead up to the scene is sort of clouded in mystery. We, we don't know who this guy is, but we understand that he must be someone somewhat important and we don't know why. So really that scene is building to the moment that Sam, the character, turns to the young and says, look at him, look, at behind, look behind you. And he sees that he's the former champion. And that's kind of the important moment. That's the moment that we're building to in the scene, which is the revelation of who our our character is. So an opening scene really should establish your main character. And that's sort of the point of it. I suppose sprinkled in is the fact that we find out that he's disheveled and, you know, clearly life hasn't gone well for him the way he looks. He has returned in some way. We get this sense of a kind of a, a returning to maybe somewhere familiar. We get this sense that he obviously he's a poker player. We immediately see him be quite skillful at poker and certainly the, the mind games or the levelling aspect to it. So we establish that he's good and then we get the kicker of, oh, he used to be the best or he used to be the champion at least. And that's the beginning of the story. And then we, we sort of flash back to when he was that kid and we wonder to ourselves well how does he get to the place he's in now and uh, and that's sort of important that's a really good explanation because you know that's why you know a lot of movies and tv use voiceover to kind of describe to you who the character is but in this case you have this hand and then the young fellow who lost the hand it, it's natural for him to wonder who the villain is or the hero rather a uh, villain to him hero to the audience and so it's this natural way of showing it rather than just like you know having to bang it on people's heads with a voiceover, which I, I don't hate voiceover at all. I think it's sometimes quite nice. But in this case, it's a very elegant way to kind of get around that, huh? Well, I think voiceover is necessary at times in movies. And it's been done very well in many films, of course. But it should be a last resort. For me, it's the rule is show, don't tell. So it has to be an action. It has to be a dramatic action. You don't want, you don't even want exposition. Ideally, you don't even want the guy to turn around and go, he used to be the best there ever was. Look at him there on the board. You know, it has to be that visual moment of like pointing at a photograph and that photograph coming to life at this epic moment in this guy's past. So everything is shown and nothing is told. Like nobody hand delivers you any of the information. You have to garner it from each little visual thing that you're given. I love that. I mean, as we know, there's a lot of poker players who are passionate about writing, content creation, and there's so many great poker courses out there for people to kind of go from an advanced beginner to a very strong player. From the writing perspective, if we have listeners who are like, oh, I want to start start writing more, like create a poker scene of my own, what do you feel like are the best like beginner resources to like just get a little bit better at writing? Oh, that's a great question. I I actually mentioned this book on another show recently. I was on Chasing Poker Greatness with Brad and I mentioned a phenomenal book by Ted Hughes called Shakespeare and the Goddess of Complete Being. And really, it's just a sort of Bible type text about drama in Shakespeare's work. And really, there's not many better than Shakespeare, but it also sort of reveals the tricks of Shakespeare. The Shakespeare was actually a bit sort of sneaky in repeating things and using things over and over again and using character types over again to create drama efficiently and be able to churn out so much work there's a real good lesson in that book while it's a phenomenal book by a poet laureate a you know phenomenal talent in his own right Ted Hughes the subject matter of Shakespeare 
it's a great way into that work and a great way to get your head around that kind of storytelling, which I think is so important for me. Aside from there being a kind of an epic movie scene that these poker scenes were based on that we're talking about today, for me, the biggest structural thing in storytelling, in trying to create cinema or write scripts was always at having a mythological backdrop i always wanted a story to have a uh, a mythological framework of, a, of an ancient story maybe that had already been told many many times over and if you could follow the beats of that story then you knew you were in very safe ground telling your story because you you couldn't get to a place where you're like oh what does my character do now because there is this template in place i, I feel like that's probably the most important thing to do is kind of figure out what your templates are and figure out how you want to story tell even if people aren't aware of what you're inspired by, there's this kind of invisible depth to it um, because you're, you know, standing in the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. And, and essentially, the audience should never know that that's what you've done. Like, if you've done it properly, they never realize that you based your entire story off the Daedalus myth or something, you know, which, in fact, you know, Nothing Left to See, which is the name of this movie, was done. You know, that, that's what I did. I based it on the on the sort of Theseus and the Minotaur Daedalus storyline from mythology. So if they realize that, there's probably something wrong in that. So they it has to be buried and it has to be a writer's tool that's very well disguised in the actual text. Okay, so you, you you said Nothing Left to See is the name of the movie, a great title. Um, and I got to ask you, have you ever tweeted at Brian Koppelman to ask him to read your script? I've tweeted at Brian Koppelman to ask him to come on my show and he won't come on. So so uh, that would be a start at least. If I could get him on the show and do a cool interview with him, which by the way, Brian, I wrote this interview for you about a year ago. I probably have to update it now, but I did loads of work writing a really good interview that I'd love to have you on the show. And then maybe afterwards we can talk about scripts. No, I, I'm partly joking because Brian is always so, he, I mean, I, I absolutely love billions and I love a lot of the poker writing, but he's just so funny at dealing with people who say that they've like written their the latest rounders who have a script. You and he would be, um, would have a lot of interesting war stories of like, you know, tackling trolls. You know, you have d different philosophies, but I feel like he's like, he's one of the best. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not in his league at all. <laughs> For those of you who aren't aware of Brian Koppelman, he's the writer of Rounders. I think most people know that, the, the co-screenwriter of Rounders and also of uh, Billions. But he also is just very funny on Twitter because people are constantly asking him to read his scripts. And, you know, um, obviously, if you're a well-known personality writer on Twitter, you get asked that 100 times a day. Well, now that we've mentioned Brian, I obviously have to say Rounders is my favorite, although maybe it isn't. Although I did say underrated. I, I squeezed that in. Oh, yeah, it's quite I highly mean, rated. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very highly rated. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any good ones. <laughs> I think it's strange because I think most poker players probably balk at most of the poker content that's out there and find it kind of hard to relate to it because I guess TV poker or movie poker isn't like real poker. Um, I guess Martin did a very good job going through every mention of poker in the media and in television and books and God knows what else in that amazing book he wrote last year. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know if, the, if, if I have an underrated um, poker movie or, or movie that has a poker scene. Um, gosh, I, I, I should, probably should just try and think up one. I don't know what it would be. Oh. Sounds like you got to make your movie then. Okay, what about your most underrated poker hand? What is the most underrated poker hand? Yeah, like a hand that people should be playing more, um, or they, especially like in the live amateur circuit where they don't give enough love for this hand. Uh, I think probably the hands like king four suiteds and queen three suiteds in middly to late position, if it's a very soft lineup, a particularly soft lineup, I think those hands against opponents who don't three bet enough and just flat too much and don't punish you is, is definitely the hands where you can find 
profitable ways to play more hands and they're the ones you can play profitably uh, against certain kind of weak villains. Well, your wonderful co-host, Ara, has already locked up a King X suit in hand for, for the grid. So uh, good answer there. So for Pocket Fives, you obviously wrote this hand for a script. But being that you've won millions of dollars online and played, um, that must mean you've also played many millions of hands, I would take, I would imagine, um, over your like, what is it? How many years career now in playing poker online? Like over a decade. You've probably had some memorable actual hands with fives. Like when you think about fives, does like a positive or negative memory pop into your head? Usually positive, I guess, because they tend to be your set miners uh, when, when, when you uh, you get the guy with ace or kings to put in way too much. I, I did have a hand a bit like that. I think it was an EPT day one where I got a guy to put an entire stack in with kings against my fives when I, you know, probably set mined getting over 100 to 1 and yeah he was willing to put the whole stack in well he had to be cajoled a bit obviously had to give him a bit of a speech like I think you're probably going to have good outcomes with those types of hands when you play them correctly I think the big danger with those kind of hands is you set mine at the wrong price you maybe get too handcuffed to them on boards that maybe seem like they're good boards but aren't actually that great even if the board seems great they're not going to realize the equity by the river enough against certain opponents who are going to you know put the pressure on you yeah i mean i think i feel like one mistake that i might see people make with fives or you know fours or those low pocket pairs is set mind them in situations where if they're closing the action or close to closing the action it might be okay but just like with every increasing player the chances of getting three bed and getting into dicey chances going goes up and underrating that factor yeah, absolutely agree with you. Pocket Fives, I think, is a hand that, you know, obviously there's another podcast or another website fully devoted to Pocket Fives. It feels like a, a very kind of important hand to click off the grid. I'm really glad that, that you did it, David. Screw you, Lance. I took Pocket Fives. <laughs> I know, I know. Have some of that, Johnny. I, I feel a bit... <laughs> I know I feel a bit bad about that but hey you know you had a hand that you actually wrote and and then you also apparently had an EPT where you um doubled up against kings with it and you said that you had speech play in that hand yeah the guy didn't like me to begin with and that's certainly a situation that I'm sure when my co-host Dara is on he'll probably mention how unpopular I can be and prickly and uh, spiky I can be with people at times so it is quite a weapon when you can get on the wrong side of somebody and then you do make a hand you can really get them to put a lot of chips in emotionally I've been dying to have you on the grid you and Dara um, you guys do great things for media and poker and um, also just always keeping us entertained on Twitter at uh, that's a DK Lappin right and then what other um, social media accounts because obviously your podcast is everywhere but where do you suggest people find the chip race we have basically a Facebook page and a, a Twitter account that's where it all goes we also have a YouTube page where we're experimenting at the moment with another show called The Lock-In where we do a sort of a half hour more off the cuff unedited video web chat I guess it's sort of for the times we live in right now Darren and I just shoot the breeze about poker and tell a few stories so if people are interested in more visual content YouTube's the place to go to find that but yeah uh, the podcast is on all the usual stuff SoundCloud and Stitcher and Apple Music so you can find our show there and you can pretty much always get me on Twitter I pretty much live on the thing I've already rated the chip race on um, Apple but I might have to change the rating 
rating to five stars now that you've actually come on the show. Well, I have to say strictly off the record as well, and this will be a test of your journalistic integrity now. I have been a big fan of The Grid since it started, Jen, and I was really happy to see you won the award this year. Sincerely, thank you for having me on. And uh, oh, no, oh, no, wait, hang on. Do I hear the music? Are you doing the play, play playing me off music? <laughs> I can hear it. It's coming in. That means it's almost finished now. That means you're telling me to go away. OK, hang on. I, I only have one. I have, this is my last chance to get my impression. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favourite podcast network, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Together we can reach that magic number 169. I really like it when you rate my show. I like it even better when you send me money. <laughs> Actually, the, the money is for the kids. Teach them jazz. That was a great impression. That was fantastic. Thank you so much taking the coveted combo of Pocket Fives. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent. You won't see.